Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Pinchas covers Numbers chapter uh, 20, Numbers 25 through 29, basically. And also our Haftarah section covered uh, mostly 1 Kings chapter 19, good chunk of that. They're talking about the uh, Eliyahu and uh, his, his encounter there after <laughs> uh, fleeing. And also uh, John chapter 2 with Yeshua there in the temple. So these are the three sections that we're taking a, lo- a look at here today. Now, uh, we can see here that there is um, some parallels between these three sections that we're looking at here. Some parallels here between the section of Pinchas and also the section we looked at in Kings and also the section that we're looking at in John chapter 2. So we see the, say there's a passionate link between them, this jealousy, the, the zealousy of it that there is a, this passion for the things of the Lord. And so you see with the first part with Pinchas says that his, uh, he was jealous with my jealousy among them. And then when you get over into 1 Kings 19, verse 10, and it says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And then you see over in John chapter 2, which is a quotation from Psalm 69, 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me. So you can see a link between all three of these is that this is the jealousy of the Lord, the passion of the Lord for the people of God. Now, we could think, well, are these people just like humans? When we, we think of jealousy, what do you think of? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Bad thing. It's a bad thing. Why is it? With humans, a bad thing. Usually ends in violence, okay. Usually ends in violence. Well, we could say, just to, for full disclosure here, well, um, don't these situations end in violence of a sort? So, if we were equivocating, that's our big 50 cent word for the day, to equivocate means to take at least two things, and say they are the same. Superficially, you'll see this a lot in culture today where sloppy thinking says, well, this looks, and this looks the same, so they are the same. But no, they're not the same. 
they're not the same at all. I mean, we saw a good example of it where where people were were uh, drawing equivalents. You had someone who stepped in to stop a mass murder in a shopping mall, and the local officials said, well, he was a good Samaritan. And so someone superficially said, well, wait a minute, good Samaritan, he helped somebody. How can you say that stepping in and inflicting harm upon the person who was inflicting harm upon others was the same as the Good Samaritan. And that is an example of equivocation because you're just saying, well, okay, these situations sort of look the same, being the nice guy, and they also look the same because you had someone stepping in to do harm and then someone had harm done to them with the uh, person that was laid by the roadside in the parable. So aren't they the same? Well, no, they're not the same at all. Because what was the hallmark of the Good Samaritan? With the Samaritan, number one. He was helping someone from Israel. So Samaria, remember from the Gospels, was the outcast. They were considered the half-breeds. Because roll the tape back to the time of the exiles, where first Assyria took away the northern kingdoms of Israel, then Babylon took away the southern kingdom of Israel. And with the results, you had some one of the popular ways that they would subjugate the local populations was to resettle the areas that, where they came in. They would resettle the areas so that people wouldn't have this sense of connection to the land that they were in. So it's no longer the land of my home anymore because I was born somewhere else. Uh, yes, Alex. Yeah, I, I just want to back up to zealous. Yes. Um, that's a pretty good key word for us as uh, believers. Uh, it happens throughout. And um, it's zealous means you're kind of putting your heart into it and taking it. It's, is faith good enough? You know, you get into the whole St. Paul thing, you know, just sitting here and meditating and believing, I'm heading to heaven. Well, do something about it, and do something about it with a little zeal. <laughs> I mean, so that's a good, it's good kind of a thing to keep in the back of the mind as believers. Put a little zeal into it. Yeah, put a, put a little zeal into it. Okay, well, one of the second comparisons that we, we have in this is from the section in Parashat uh, Pinkas uh, about the eternal priesthood found in Numbers chapter 25, verse 13. So there with Pinchas, he stepped in and at that point stepped in to serve the Lord's purpose and to be the Lord's defender upon earth. And then you see in the section of talking about Eliyahu, you've got this sense that Eliyahu, uh, it's like traditionally he comes in in the realm, he wasn't a priest, but traditionally he starts serving as sort of a priest. And it, 
that idea just didn't come out of thin air because what do you see at the end of the Tanakh? There in the letter of Malachi or Malachi. How does that end? What's going to happen? Who's going to come? We, we celebrate that around Pesach time, Passover time, looking for Eliyahu to come because Eliyahu is seen as more than just a prophet. He's being a major forerunner of what? The holy handoff of the herald of what is going to come with the kingdom of God to bring in the messianic era, to bring in the anointed one's era, which is why you see in the Gospels, it was very important to make an association between two people related to the Messiah, between Eliyahu and Yohanan, or John, the baptizer. So, very important because Yeshua said that if you accept it, he was the one that was taking on the mantle, so to speak. Because remember with the, with the cycle, Eliyahu passed off his mantle to whom? Yes, pass that off. And that mantle was very important. And in our account that we're seeing in Pinchas, who is the mantle going between? Moshe and Yoshua or Yoshua. So that mantle had to pass between one to the next. From one to the next, a very important legacy. Because even though Moshe, the man, was not going to go into the land, Moshe, the uh, principle or the leader, the leadership of Moshe, the one who had that relationship with God, and that that would be the relationship between a leader and the ultimate leader, that was going to go into the land. That would be the model for the people of Israel. So when you get down to the time of the first, quote, king of Shaul, that's why the prophet. You know, Shemuel was like, you know, distraught. But the Lord said, look, they haven't rejected you. The Lord said, they rejected me. They didn't get that holy handoff that was, were, saw in this particular passage of Pinchas, where you would have Moshe handing off the mantle, this authority, and not just authority, but how authority is supposed to be wielded. Because, you know, you probably have grown up in a household where authority was wielded, but <laughs> wielded not really effectively. Not like, but the authority wielded, so you say, this, this legacy of our family is just so incredible. I want to take the the um, example of my father, and I want to take that to my children. Example of my father down to the next father, down to the next father, down to the next father. We've lived in areas, lived in countries and states and cities where you've had the mantle of authority, 
has maybe not been one that you would say, wow, we want that to continue on for to the next leader, to the next leader, to the next leader. So that is what is hugely important between the passing between one to the next and why you saw the, the reminder to Moshe in this particular passage, hey, because you did not do what with me before the people? Give honor. That was a part of the legacy of the leadership because you know the whole thing of communicating with God as one talks to a friend that was the legacy of leadership of Moshe with God. That was the legacy of leadership with Avraham with God. So this legacy of leadership, this is how the, uh, the servants of heaven, Israel, was supposed to relate to the world. They were supposed to be having friendship with God and then taking on what they got from God further into the world through this relationship with God. But that's one of the things that you see (laughs) that went downhill fast was this disconnect where you get to Shaul, it didn't take long, where you see the disconnect of the people uh, not wanting to have that leader who has a friendship with God and then ex- brings that down into interactions with the people. Now, they just wanted a king like everybody else. Well, how did the kings of every other nation treat their people? The kings of recent history and Western history, not much different than the kings of Eastern history, ancient Near East history. It's pretty much the same. And like Israel's history, there were some good kings, but there was a whole lot of bad kings. And that's same with the ancient Near East, same with pretty much every place on the planet where you've had monarchs of one form or another, tribal leaders, etc. You've had some good ones, but there's a whole lot of bad ones. Why is that? There's a great aphorism that goes along with this. Yes, Larry. Human government does not work. Mm, why not? It is not within man that walks to direct his steps. Mm. They have to, we have to be directed by God. That's what I think. One of the, the things that uh, may help with, with that in directing the steps is realizing that you are walking along somebody else's road. And that you are a caretaker of the road, not the builder of the road. And not say, well, I don't like the way the road is going, so I'm just going to build a new road. And I just make it go in a different, different direction. <laughs> Did you talk to the Yes. <laughs> so, thus, you can see where the disconnect comes. When you start losing that cleaving to the Lord, otherwise known as a friendship with heaven, when the leadership loses that, and then the people lose it, and then the families lose that from passing that on from one generation to the next, then you see the big disconnect happen, and you see starting to lurch into people wielding power. 
and then people will either rise up against the power or move. That's one of the great things that's happened in the world are the migrations to flee away from power and or people trying to to grab power and jump for it. So, yes, uh, Larry. Yeah. That's where he says, if you forget me, I will mm. forget your children. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, that's, that's harsh. Yeah. Do you forget me? I'll forget your children. Because, yeah. And it goes, if you're not passing it on, the important thing is, especially with Israel, is Israel is not just any family. This is the vehicle for God to connect with the world. It was to be the vehicle through which the Mashiach would come to the world. So this is a very special family. And if this particular family has dis- dysfunction, the whole world is, has no hope for getting out of this problem. So thus, as Yeshua said, and as the apostles re- reemphasized a lot, is that you know to whom much is given what much will be required if you're a, a leader a teacher it's going to come down harder upon you than anybody else because why the stakes are extremely high the stakes are hugely high so thus when we have in the shema that you or to teach these things as you walk along, talk about these things. Because why? This is not supposed to be something that we just connect with once a week or something like that. And so, oh, that's kind of fun for the far-off netherworld of uh, fantasy land, but it doesn't have anything to do with real life. No, that's why the Shema talks about you talk about these things, you teach them through everything you do so that... This is something that is a part of a legacy that is connected to real life. And it's something that was going to be passed on, not just between the family members, but more people are going to say, hey, we like that. Or to put it in prophetic words, we've heard God's with you, as what's foretold for the day of the Lord, that people will come to the end of their rope, so to speak, with all other ways of doing things in the world. Things will fall apart, and they'll be looking for what way actually really does work. And then they'll come back and say, hey, the Lord's way really does work. So that's when, in Hebrews, as we talked about just recently, where the long section of the book, really chapters 1 through 10, talk about this priesthood, building up, building, 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 building about the eternal priesthood that's described as this Yeshua holding this eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. That is why that is so important because it is not just like the many deities of the world where they just do their thing off there and Maybe they concern themselves. Maybe they hit the smite button. Maybe they hit the blessing button every so often. But you never really know one way or the other. Yes, Alex. That um, this the the last sign from Yahweh to Elijah was. Is that when he heard him? It was like a, a whisper or a, a, yeah. a light wind. 
Yeah. You didn't hear him in the other things. No, it, it, it wasn't the big, the big yeah. dramatic display. Yeah. And which, the- which, is, which is very interesting because you'll see in, uh, like, like we, had, we had said there with the, with the prayer from um, the book of Joshua there about the, when they were getting ready to cross into the land and then they were going to follow the ark. One of the things that's mentioned in that passage is that you will see the Lord do wonders. Well, the wonders are great. But if you depend upon the wonders, then you end up with the situation that Yeshua then had to address. It's like this generation keeps looking for wonders. We want to see a bigger car crash. Well, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Because, uh, again, I'm still exhaustively searching this first century stuff. And, and Josephus and other historians will say, well, we, we knew John the Baptist. Oh, yeah, there's, there's records of him. And James, oh, yeah, he stood his ground, got whipped, and uh, hung with the Essenes or whatever. But the Jesus guy, yeah, I think I know who you mean. But clearly he was there because those guys knew him. Plus, look what's come out of it. But as far as being the booming figure, he was, he was that smaller voice. Uh, so that's what, that's what I find kind of fascinating. So yeah, and that's you bring up one of the the great dangers of equivocation, where people will just take things that look sort of similar and say, "Well, they are the same." You know, the Bar Kokhba and Yeshua. Oh, they were just the same. You know, people who kind of pretended to be the Mashiach, but and eh, didn't didn't really work out. Well, the problem is, is that that's just a very surface look at the situation. You're not actually seeing, did Bar Kokhba really take up the mantle that you see from the Messianic era and what was lived out with the tabernacle? Was that really the fulfillment of what the Mashiach was all about? What the tabernacle was all about? No. What you see that more fully lived out with the extension of, hey, the pattern shown to you on the mountain, well, this truly is what that was all about. That is in the life of Yeshua, not Bar Kokhba. So not in any of the other pretenders that came along. So yes, the still small voice, and it allows you to easily disregard it. It allows... Exactly why um, Yeshua said, quoting from Yeshua the prophet, you know, why he teaches in parables. And it's like quoting from Isaiah, so that they'll be ever hearing, but never understanding, and ever seeing, and never getting it. So they'll be hearing everything, seeing everything, but whoop, as we'll say, go right over your head, or in one ear and out the other, all kinds of other idioms you can say about it. That you will perceive it, but not understand it. That's one of the, the dangers of, uh, of focusing upon the outside with not truly understanding what's in it. We'll be getting to that with our uh, section that we're reading from John chapter 2 about uh, Yeshua and the temple. But... That is one of the, the key things about when you read the words, 
when you read the words of God here, you have to really look to see, okay, now I, I see what's on the surface, but am I truly understanding what it's communicating here? We'll be seeing that here in just a bit. So some other comparisons here that you see like in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, and Luke chapter 1, verse 17, we're talking about Yohanan, the John the Baptist, coming in the spirit of Elijah. And then you see, okay, with Elijah, now what was Elijah as it talks about in the prophetic book of Malachi, his, one of his main roles was to do what? To turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and fathers to the children, rebuild the intergenerational ties so that you will have one generation respecting the next generation, passing things along as it was supposed to be with the legacy. I think what Yeshua is talking about, you're not, <laughs> you're not just descended from Abraham just because you happen to be genetically related to him. There is the legacy of Abraham, the mantle of Abraham. Do you actually take that on? Or are you just concerned about the externals of it? I am physically, I can, you know, to use a, an acronym here, I can take a genetic test and say, yes, I'm descended from Abraham. But, great, that's something you can make note of, but what difference does that really make? What difference does it make who you are descended from? You know, you think about, we, we mentioned this before, on uh, the legacy of families. And we can look on a family tree, and if you've done genealogy, you can look at this family tree. Do you have any idea who those people are beyond maybe one or two generations? What they, what they thought, what they stood for, what their morals were like? None. None whatsoever. So... That is the, the thing of legacy from one generation to the next. You know, it's in Western culture, we tend to lose that a lot of the importance of legacy. And some of the other cultures of the world, the legacy is extremely important to where the family stories of what they actually do and they did and they stood for meant something. And that gets passed along from one generation to the next. And that shows you the importance of legacy. Hugely important in our discussion here. So, so some, some other comparisons that we have here between our section we're looking at today in Pinchas and Numbers 27, 17. And we're talking about Yehoshua, who is going to be one who will go out and come in before them. And uh, some commentaries from First uh, Samuel chapter 18 talking about David. Basically, a leader. Because one who was going to go out and by his word, they would go out and by his word, they would come in. That's a, 
um, an idiom that you'll see often in the scriptures about a leader, especially of the military. And you see that we've, we've seen that with the, with the tabernacle that where you would have that prayer that we, we say when we um, start our scripture readings about the rising of the cloud, the rising of the cloud from the ark of the tabernacle, and then the returning of the cloud down. That's that thing of the leader again. When the leader says, okay, time to go, you get ready to go and you move. And when the leader says, okay, time to stop, then the tabernacle is set back up again and everything is kind of done in reverse order to put the camp back up again. So in a similar way, you've got over in our passage there in the Haftarah in, in 1 Kings 18.19 where you've got Eliyahu is, um, personally was confronting the king and these prophets of Baal and Asherah there on the mountain, Mount Carmel. And you see a similar parallel which is brought to us from the Messianic prophecy there in Isaiah 53, verse 4. It says, Surely he, our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So what a leader is, is a leader bears burdens. They're not a burden shifter. They're not a blame shifter. As the old saying goes, the buck stops with the leader. The buck stops with the leader. The leader takes the blame. Takes the blame, doesn't try to blame anybody else for it. So then, let's uh, take a look uh, into our section that we're looking at in John chapter 2. So, John chapter 2, you see this, this passage that's brought up from the Psalms there, about zeal for your house will consume me, about, uh, in this case, it's being brought up in this situation of Yeshua getting very angry about what is going on inside the house of God. So the question comes up, is, well, why is there so much zeal for this house? And something that, that comes up every seven years uh, that's talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 31, where you have, during Sukkot, we have a reading of the entire book. Now, traditionally, that is the book of Devarim or Deuteronomy, where you just you read through the entire book and it's definitely quite the undertaking. We've, we've done that some years where you have the reading through there. It's definitely quite the whirlwind of going through the entire book. But in the process of it, it's not just you get a small taste of that if you're in traditional circles where on Purim time where they have, it's where the, the phrase comes, the whole Megillah, is because the Megillah is the account. It's basically the book of Esther. And when you get the whole Megillah, is, there's a reading of the entire book of Esther. And <laughs> often 
it's said to be just a mitzvah or a, a good deed, a commandment to just hear it. Well, sometimes it can be done, depending on the reader, at auctioneer speed. So, okay, you've heard it, you've perceived those words, but are you actually hearing it? Just like with Yeshiau, okay, you're hearing it, but do you understand it? Is it, it's going in your ears, but is it going into your brain, your heart, your passions to come out in the things that you do? So, thus, um, in Yeshayahu, uh, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, you got this proclamation of the day of the Lord. And you see in some of the rabbinical sources connect this to one of these days of the Lord where you have this reading of the word on the day of the Lord is connected to the book of Devarim. Whether that is or not, who's to say? But it's Devarim is a is a good start because when you look at the apostolic writings, the Gospels, Paul, the other apostles, they're quoting from Deuteronomy a lot. It's the, one of the most quoted from books of the, uh, in the apostolic writings is from Deuteronomy itself. In this passage, now it will come about that in the last days the mount of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Yerushalayim. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their shears into pruning hooks, spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and they will never again learn war. So, amen to that. So thus you can see is what the internalization of the word is all about. It's a transformation. You're no longer looking to attack people. You are doing what? You, know, you get the picture of an agricultural society. Well, if you're in farm country, now we're in quasi-farm country here in Sonoma County. So one of the things that you hear when you talk to farmers around here, like we got the vineyard right across the street, you talk to the grape growers, and that's, even though they are in business and they are theoretically competing against each other, what do you often hear about? Oh, yeah, you know, well, I was talking to my friend. He's got a vineyard down the road. And, man, he's like, oh, he just got a new harvester. And so we worked out a deal. So, he, you know, okay, well, as soon as he's done with this harvester, we'll bring this harvester over to my place. And, um, you know, there's even a thing up and over the hill in Napa Valley where you have some old family that owns a vineyard and a, and a uh, winery, and they've just worked out a handshake deal with their winemaker that when they retire, it's just going to pass to the winemaker because you know they nobody in the in the vintners' families have any interest in keeping going with the the vineyard winery business, so it's just going to pass to the winemaker. 
So this idea of people in agriculture having more of a feeling of being all together in a single pursuit, you know, farmers will talk to each other about, hey, what's working in your field? Oh, I'm trying this, I'm trying that. Oh, okay. Um, irrigation's working. A lot of people try and dry farming now, it's, which is a uh, Herculean endeavor in some areas. So getting what works, what doesn't, is hugely important. So you move from the day of the Lord, from being at war with each other to being all in the same pursuit together, bringing forth bread from the earth is what we pray when we ask for the blessing on the bread. Because that's the acknowledgement of where does the bread come from? The one who brings forth bread from the earth, brings forth food from the earth. So, thus, people that are involved in agriculture can be, not always, but can be a little bit more open to the ideas that, hey, I'm not the master of my destiny. Because farmers around here, I hear it all the time. It's like, what's the, what's the season going to be like? And I, I ask them every year, right around April, March time period. I don't know. Because we can set everything up, make sure we dial in all our nutrients. You know, we get everything dialed in right. We get our irrigation set up perfect and just poof, frost, heat wave, bugs. You just never know what's going to happen. And you just, at this point, ah, I don't know. You just have to throw up your hands and say, I am not in control of this. I've done what, as much as I thought I could do. But then I just have to say, I'm not in control of it. Yes, Larry. This, I hope this is appropriate enough, but there's an old joke about when a farmer wins the lottery and they go to him and they say, well, what are you going to do with all the money you got from the lottery? He said, I don't know. I think I'll just keep farming until it's all gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's sad but true. Uh, sometimes I talk to a lot of winery owners around here and it, it, it's a similar thing as to what they used to say about yachts. You know, a yacht is when it's a, it's a hole in the, in your Harbor where you pour money into. Well, a winery is like a hole where you just pour money into it and hope that you're going to get something out of it. Just hugely, massively expensive. So Yes. I forgot that on my birthday, May 10th, there was hailstorm. There was <laughs> ice across the top of the Palisades in yes. Calistoga, May 10th. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of them lost a lot of... In April, when you asked them, it looked like it was going to be a good year. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I, I actually was happened to be talking with some before and after the frost. And it was, as you mentioned, a, a big, big change. But... When you see, I mean, that's just like life. And we can just think that we're running things along and we've got everything in control. And then there is a curveball that comes along. So what then do you do when you get the curveball and it hits you right in the face? What do you do? So 
there's a lot of talk in society, especially around this area with the fires that have come through and burned this area, burned that area about resiliency. How resilient are you? And then with the, with the pandemic and people being afraid of this and that, how resilient are you to bounce back from certain things? Where is your core? Where is your foundation? There is so much anxiety and depression going on in the world today because people don't know where they can put their trust, the things that will not change. We can see from our brothers and sisters, both in Scripture and in the centuries following that, that they were thrown into prisons. They were destroyed financially. But what did they put their trust and their faith on? The things that do not change. So you see that with the reboot of Israel after the exiles to the first century, which is where we get the apostolic writings from the Gospels. And then not too long after that, you had the second exile, second major exile come within to the situation where it is today, where you don't have the temple is not in operation. So a lot of what we read about in the offerings and Pinchas, not possible right now because there's no place to offer that. No place to offer that. But we do have the eternal priesthood, which is what we were getting at earlier. So thus, when it looks like when Jerusalem was destroyed, when the temple of God flattened, no place anymore. Is God dead? No, because remember what David said there in the Psalms. And then also what Solomon prayed for when he was building the temple. What house could contain you? Much less this house that I built. So yes, and that is the pattern that we see going back when we are looking at the end of Exodus and into Leviticus. This was the pattern that was shown on the mountain. The pattern shown on the mountain, which gets us back to, again, why is there so much zeal for this house? So we see that uh, when we get into Deuteronomy, which is the book we're getting ready to head into next, at the end of it, there is this talking about the blessings and the curses. And they are written down on the Mount of Ebal. And interestingly enough, that was they actually found a uh, whitewashed rock with curses on Mount Ebal, written here just recently. So it's not some sort of fairy tale someone cooked up. Yes, that was indeed what happened on that particular mountain. But the point was is that these particular writings were to be put beside the ark as it's mentioned there in Deuteronomy 31:26. So this account the of Devarim was to be put beside the ark. So what is in the ark? The tablets of the testimony. We call that the 10 commandments, the 10 words. So these accounts of the 
movement of the people of God and how God had been dwelling with Israel and transforming Israel from the inside. That was to be a sidecar to go along with the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, the who God is. So in the ark, you have who God is. Beside the ark, you have what God did. And you look back to that and say, oh, that is what God did. So later on in Israel's history, you've got this apostasy that happens. And you've got this movement away from what Moshe had had set up and had moved forward and handed off to Yoshua. And there would be a problem that there would be the focusing on the pattern, the building, the temple, the functions of the temple, instead of who was going to dwell in the temple, who that building was for, what that building was for, what it represented. It became from a pattern to a, a shamanistic tool where you could just like rattle it the right way and get your blessings. Like the, the great um, celestial slot machine, you just pull the handle and out come the blessings. But you see, during the, the reign of one of the later kings, uh, Josiah, whose name means <laughs> greatly uh, supports or establishes Yah, so they found the book of the law. Now you think about this. In Deuteronomy 31, they talk about, you take this book, this record of Israel and the dwellings of God and the dealings of God with Israel, and you put that beside the ark. So they just found it in the back of the temple. What does that kind of make you think about the ark and what was happening with the ark of the covenant? The whole thing was getting neglected. So if this book that was supposed to be, hey, this is the, the dealings of God with man and how heaven relates to man and how you have the dwelling place of the creator of heaven and earth with mankind, and that just gets forgotten in some closet. Well, that was supposed to be right next to the testimony of who the creator is. The creator's word saying, hey, this is who I am. So when we go on from that, then we get down to the time of some of the prophets, especially Yumriyahu, who is kind of warning, warning about the great exiles to come. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 15, it really talks about <laughs> that, hey, you leaders of Israel are focusing too much on the pattern that was shown to Moses on the mountain versus what this pattern is supposed to be about, who it's actually communicating. 
you know, it is, it is like, it is like, you know, you take a picture with somebody and the person is like right there next to you, but you're just obsessed with the picture and you just spend so much time with the picture. You completely forget the press person that the picture is of the picture of the person is like the tabernacle. It is the pattern that is, was shown to us of what heaven is like and what heaven is doing. Which is why the, one of the most important things we do is when we go through um, Exodus and Leviticus is to show, okay, this is the pattern that was shown on the mountain. What is this telling us about what God is trying to do? Because what you'll see there in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy is what you see then in the prophets and in the gospels and in the other apostolic writings as to, okay, this is what it is lived out like. This is what that, that road we were talking about earlier that leads in a direction. So thus you see that in Jeremiah 7, 4, it talks about, you know, do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And you know, it goes on to say in verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. This is a passage that gets quoted in uh, Matthew chapter 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and it's you know, partially referenced in what we're looking at in John chapter 2. But all of these passages go back, and you know, there's a passage here in Isaiah 56, which riffs on the same thing. You'll see the same thing in the first, uh, what is it, 20 chapters of Ezekiel, where you see the same thing, where the prophet is like shown, even they give this picture of he's the vision of like digging through the walls of the tabernacle or the temple in that, t- in that case. So digging through the wall of the temple to look and see what's going on inside the temple. See, this is supposed to be the dwelling place of God at that point in time. This is right before you had um, Assyria really take over, flatten, and start and then followed by Babylon to take over the, um, the nations of Israel, the, t- the two kingdoms. But what was the heart situation of the people like? On the outside, it looks like the beautiful house of God. What was happening on the inside? Dark. There was, there was all kinds of uh, pagan idols was going on in there. Um, the, the priests were officiating facing the sunrise and with their backs toward their boss. I mean, you think about that today, you know, they're... The, the signs of respect are lowered, but even in Western culture, you know, would you go up to your boss and when your boss is talking, you just turn your back on your boss and just start talking to somebody else while your boss is talking to you? No, because even in our culture here today where we've lost respect for so many things, even we see, hey, that is a huge sign of disrespect. So then how much more than if you are a servant for the creator of heaven and earth, is that a sign of disrespect to be? You are, your whole role is to help the people get to your boss, creator of heaven and earth. Yet you have your back to the boss 
and you're facing off getting um, gleeful over another deity, which is a creation of your boss. So, thus you see that the inside of the hearts of the people was dreadfully sick. But what were they doing? They kept the edifice, the outside of the temple, in place because what? It goes back to the den of robbers. You're just in it for the cash. Because they're bringing in the offerings, and you, your job as the priesthood is to receive the offerings. But like we learned in Leviticus, the offerings are nothing more than a representation of whom? The one who brings it. Yes, the people. But instead of being a faithful servant to say, yes, I am taking you, person of Israel, in to go see the king, said, thank you for your cash. Have a nice day. So, thus, when you see Yeshua's comments in here, now you can see why he was so incredibly angry. Because when you see the, the picture of these um, Shemotes, Exodus, Vayikra, Leviticus, this was to be a representation of the dwelling place of God with mankind. So then with Yeshua as the word of heaven, you know, mishkaning with humanity, and humanity as we learn from Genesis chapter 1, mankind was made, what? In the image of God. In the likeness of God, he created them. So thus you have, as Hebrews 1 points out, the true representation of heaven is now here. Pointing out, hey, you, built, you tear down this temple, and in three days, I'm going to rebuild it. And they immediately go to the, the physical. Hey, this, this, it took decades to build this building, this building that you're seeing around you. Well, what good is the building if what it was built for you are just completely disregarding? You know, you've seen that happen in Europe where so many places in Europe, the churches have become mosques, they've become museums, houses. Because why? People, eh. That house that was dedicated to career of heaven and earth, eh, not so important anymore. So, lost interest in the creator, so thus the house serves really no purpose anymore. So that's just a little um, note here about the, the census. When we get down to the census, one of the things that is always good to, to note here is this is the, the tally of, uh, it may, may look like an eye chart here to uh, cover one eye and read the top line here, but the note here is of the tribes in the first census that we see in Numbers chapters 1 and 2 and then the census that we have in Numbers 26, and the 
the difference in the tallies. And on the third column, it talks about the change in the numbers of people. And the interesting thing to note there is the second one down, Shimon or Simeon, it went from, in numbers 1 and 2, from 59,300 to 22,200. A loss of 37,100. It's the biggest loss of all of the tribes. Now, as you're like, why is this census here in this particular place? Well, this is in chapters 26 and 27. What was chapter 25 about? How did it start? Why did we start in verse 1 of chapter 25? Yeah, the plague. The guy who got the point. Pinchas gave him the point. Yeah. What tribe is he from? Yeah. So when you talk about your legacy, that's a bad legacy. That's a terrible legacy. So when you think about that huge number that went out in the plague, how many of that was from Shimon, from the family members of this guy? Huge, huge number. So that's one of those things that, you know, be careful what your legacy is because if it's a legacy for bad, ouch. Who else is going to be going off the cliff? Yeah. Generations be going off the cliff. All right. So that brings us here to the end. Are there any last thoughts or questions? Larry, yes. Go ahead. Um, I'm still hoping that you're going to go over the, the reasoning behind the Pincus having the right to go do what he did. Uh, the point behind the point, yes, as to why he had that right to do so. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier before we got going with services today. Um, some of the things that have been reflected on over many, many centuries on this particular aspect is, well, where did it happen? There is the idea based on the wording of it as being um, the tent, um, there is a specific note of the tent, like you will see Moshe is referred to as, you know, Haish, the man. That's a very specific, uh, Hebrew is not like English. We don't, uh, in English, we just throw articles in front of everything, which gives um, foreigners a terrible time. When we were teaching English in Korea, Korea, um, like in Hebrew, Korea, uh, Korean is very specific and deliberate with where it uses articles. If there is a, a, the equivalent of a the in front of a word, it's very important as to why they say the. So when you're trying to teach English, sometimes you'll have, uh, I know my students when we were over there, they were throwing articles in front of all kinds of stuff. Like the one that I, I, I thought was great and it actually strangely interesting appropriate is a lot of my students would say, instead of just saying God, they would say the God. The God, the God, the God, which is actually, it's, it's actually a pretty good idea is not just God, but the God, very specific as to what that is. So like in Korean, like in Hebrew, if there is a the in front of something, it is hugely important. Why? It's a why, like you'll 
say another word for the temple is called ha-makom, or the place. Ha-mishkan, the dwelling or the dwelling place. So very, very specific. It is a specific thing, which is why uh, there is actually a, a similar thing that some linguists have noted in uh, Greek. Greek uses a similar approach, but they not only just put a, an article in front of some, they will uh, double or triple the articles. They'll put them in between every single word that it's tied to. So um, you'll see that in one of the discussions related to um, in it, the uh, related to John chapter one. But that's kind of, yes, John. That that's they use the article in front of everything. So it's not just like a God, like you'll see some translations say, but it, they use an article in front of everything. So it is specifically the God. That's the way that, but that's a totally different conversation. But just in a reference to it, so the tent was a very specific tent, and in the context of it, they were all there, as it says, the the congregation was facing that the entry to the twin, the tent of meeting. So when it's referring to, he went in the tent. Now why would he do that? Um, that is because think about what it was before. It was not just enough that you were bringing in all of the pagan idols and you know the whole thing with the uh, the women of Midian that they specifically trucked like comfort women to basically uh, lure away the um, the men of Israel to go down that path. We're seeing a bit of that today. It's not enough that you chip away at the edges of an ideology you don't agree with. You'll also see people that are so angry, they will not just be content with using a little pickaxe to get at the wall. They'll drive a bulldozer right through it. And it just like, we just want to stick it right to you. This is basically like the ultimate um, confrontation. We're not just going to take the debauchery at the edges of the congregation. We're going to just drive it right down into the smack. Because where was the, the Mishkan? Right in the middle of it. And all of Levi was around it. And what was their job of all the camp and the family of Levi around it? To guard, keep people from just willy-nilly going into the tabernacle. So, yeah, it was the, the job of the family, and for anyone who actually went inside, that's why when you get down to Acts chapter 21, that whole thing of um, where there was the allegation that there was a Gentile who had just, Paul had just waltzed into the temple, that was a big deal. That was a hugely big deal, and you know, Tammy reminded me, that was one of the, the few things where the uh, Sanhedrin had wide latitude that Rome gave them is that for that very thing with the death penalty is if you had a Gentile who went into the temple, the Rome allowed the Sanhedrin to say, okay, if someone does that, you can mete out the death penalty. So Pincus' relation to... <coughs> Pincus was... 
a priest or at least in the line of priests yes right? in the line in the line of priests but it's one of those things when we were talking about legacy earlier what was it then that pincus passed along at least initially that zealousy we go jealousy but zealousy that basically that you are um have such a passion for preserving this that you will take action but one of the things that you'll uh, just larry was mentioning there are many commentators um will throw lots of caveats into this particular passage to say well this is not just a carte blanche uh admonition that when you see uh something happening that is against god that you just start uh, wielding out punishments yes because that's what, an important part to my mind yes uh, and we'll actually get, get into more of that when we get into the next book of devarim is um when you have specific uh prohibitions against vigilantism um, because that was that was actually ended up on national TV. There was a, a very popular TV show. I guess, guess what now? Two decades old, three decades old. Um, that was one of the um, caricatures that they had made of the Bible. It was like, oh well, if I see my neighbor mowing his lawn on the Sabbath, can I just go over and kill him? And they think, aha, I got you. Well, no, you could, but guess what would happen to you? you would be executed because there is a specific uh, prohibition in there against vigilantism. You just can't go willy off and go kill somebody, which is <laughs> part of uh, what is wrapped up in that whole conversation that you see with the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. It's part of that whole thing is um, where is the proper authority uh, granted over and what is the proper process you know, we we're having a a crisis of that even in our own culture here today and our own governments are we we have this firm foundation in this particular country of due process you have to follow specific things yeah if there is law enforcement that wants to come and do something they we have this thing you have to have probable cause. And then you have to convince a judge of that probable cause. And then the, pro then the judge has to then issue what? A warrant of various sorts. But just the, the bottom line is that there has to be a process. The policeman just can't go and kick down your door and just go in and look for stuff. But we're starting to see some of that going on right now. So that is a reminder that when you lose touch of the relationship of where your power actually comes from and who you report to as the creator of heaven and earth, that can lead to all kinds of abuses, not only just in families, but in companies and in cities and in, in counties and in countries. All these things can just go downhill extremely fast if you lose touch with who is actually in authority. Yes, Larry. In verse 4, 25, Numbers 25, verse 4, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord. 
Is that how we know that he was out? They were outside the tabernacle when that happened. Out in the sun, and the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, "Every one of you, kill the men who are joined to the Baal, Baal Peor." And then that's when the this guy came in. Whatever. His yeah, name and one of the things you might have uh, noticed when you um, see it up earlier in verse five, each of you slay. What does it say? His men. Remember what we had seen earlier about when Yithro came to Moshe said, hey, you've taken on way too much. So then what is it noted? You set up a system of people who are over tens, over hundreds, and over thousands, etc. So when you're talking about people that are having to keep tabs of those that they are directly responsible for, that's quite sobering, having to then deal with people who you are actually responsible for. Was the chief over the Simeons? Eleazar. I was trying to remember. Phineas's son. Or father. Yeah. Well, um, father. The, uh, re- related to, I the believe, the, Aaron. the, yeah, the, the census. Aaron. Yeah, he was a son of Aaron, but he was specifically related with the census. So involved in tallying the people. So can you imagine then the tallying of the people and those who would be having the memory of Israel and seeing this number that we have up here from 603,000 down to 601,000. That's with births and the next generation coming up. It's like we left with a lot, and even with births, they went down. The net gain went down. Yes, Tammy. I just did a quick calculation. So for most of these generations where you see some kind of loss, like Reuben and, you know, and also you see what Ephraim, you see these losses. And for most of those tribes that experience losses in population, Anywhere from 5%, maybe a hair over 10%. Simeon lost 62.5%. Yes. That's net loss. Yeah. Over that 40 years. So that is a big deal. Yes. And the other thing I was kind of calculate, calculating out is like, the one of the things you mentioned when you kind of started this, you were talking about generations and the grandfathers to the grandchildren, and how far does that really go until they, you, they've forgotten you, right? So then when you mentioned later on, talk about Josiah, when they found the book of Deuteronomy, well, who was his grandfather? <laughs> Manasseh. But King David, who he gained his authority as king from, is his 11th great-grandfather. Wow, that goes way back. So how many of us even know who our 11th great-grandfather is? And, and there are many of them. When you get to that point and you go, like, you have two parents, four grandparents, what, eight great-grandparents, and you divide, multiply that up by 11 or whatever, there are, we all have very many 
11th great grandfathers and 11th great grandmothers. And we don't probably don't know any of their names. Certainly not by memory. And we might know them if we've done our ancestral trees. We might know at least some of them. We probably don't know all of them. So when Josiah finds this book of Deuteronomy, I'm sure that he was very perplexed because the, the, the priests who should have preserved that in its proper place did not do that. And so Josiah's connection to King David was very remote, but yet he got his authority from King David. Yeah. Phineas in the line of Messiah. Well, it's from uh, Levi, though. And uh, Messiah is from Yehuda. Yes. So. But that's, that's the, when, when we talk about the, 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 the long and the close ties between Levi and Yehuda, it uh, goes way back about the rulership. And it's really quite, quite interesting when you see the uh, Levi. Levi and uh, Shimon were um, quite incendiary. Uh, the the original founders of those those tribes. Yes, Anne. I was going to mention that um, Shimon's relative. I mean, you know, Shimon also when he went back to his brother Joseph and what he did or what they he wanted to murder Joseph. So there's more more egregious will say sin or or hatred that Simeon had over the as his life went on and so i think it's a combination of of uh iniquity in the in the family line that caused him to lose 50 percent of the population i mean we we may actually after all this covid we may go down to 100 million i mean we don't know we don't know that 40 years from now or, or 100 years from now well, what they'll see. I mean, you know, maybe even the world's population will, will show such a, a, such a change. And, and, well, there, there, there are people who want the population to decrease, and that's, um, that's another matter. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Uh, yes, yeah, Sam, go ahead. Uh, this is a little... Um you know, off uh, from Torah portion for today, but I've been kind of, you know, wondering the reason why Dan and uh, Ephraim was not mentioned in mm. the book of Revelation chapter 7. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, I, you know, it's something that I haven't... Yeah, there are, um, there are some ideas that even go way back into uh, rabbinical times as to... Uh, related to the blessings for those particular tribes. And um, Don, uh, Dan, seen as a, a bit of a rear guard for those and for the, the, nation, um, the nation as a whole, and somewhat related to the symbol of it, sometimes as a snake, um, has been seen uh, as some of the reasons why that particular tribe um, had problems over time. But um, one of the one of the things that has been a bit challenging with with Revelation as to 
where the tribes fit in the the numbering of the leadership because um, when you are going to reconstruct the tribes that is actually quite challenging going forward it's been challenging with related to the priesthood because the the cohen's and the family of the cohen's have been trying to keep that together as far as their lineage goes over time but for a lot of the lineages now after the temple is destroyed those of lot have those have been lost so then reconstructing especially for the tribes that were of the northern kingdoms that went off into the wind uh, reconstructing those extremely challenging i mean you can perhaps put them together from yehuda and maybe benjamin levy is another one that you could probably reconstruct a bit so that um, thing of the tribes comes into are those specifically related to those particular tribes or is it another way that it's seen as um, those among Israel natural born grafted in that have the characteristics of those particular tribes as described in the prophetic blessings at the end of Genesis that you'll see that uh, Jacob gave on to the, the 12 sons and uh, the children of Yosef. So that is a, it's a very interesting open question. Uh, people have some ideas even going back in the rabbinical period as to why um, some of those tribes, especially Don, is sometimes get short shrift <laughs> with uh, the, the blessings, sometimes harsh blessings. But yeah, that's, that, that is a really interesting and good question. But also into what tribes get added in to make that number still 12. So that is the interesting picture of the, the, the swapping out. So yeah, that still is an open-ended question as to what that's referring to. But the, the key important point is that you are talking about 12, and then the 12 times the 12,000. So that's hugely significant that you are dealing with, hey, this is the leadership. Israel is um, driving the bus, so to speak, of the people of God. So thus, when the Apostle Paul is talking about you, um, you need to have the nations grafted in to Israel, not just cast Israel aside and decide to go all your own way. Israel is really the bus that you need to get on, not consider it to be a part of your convoy. <laughs> Somewhere trailing in the back is, is uh, the bus of Israel, but you got lots of other buses that are involved. I, I know it's, 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 it's a perplexing thing uh, that, that comes up with a lot of stuff in, in uh, the book of Revelation, but some of what you, or I should say, a lot of what you find in Revelation is reiterated in the prophets, especially Ezekiel is a big one, that stuff is drawn out of and expanded on in the book of revelation so that is one thing that I, I i keep looking for in the prophets as to what the significance is of some of those symbols especially the tribes
So that's a that's a good question. Yes, uh, Tammy. Eleven great grandparents. You have eight thousand one hundred ninety-two. Eleven great grandparents. Wow, I don't think I remember all of them. No, and no. so you know, King David. You know, so for Josiah. He, King David was one of 8,192 11th great grandparents that were. Wow. That's a, that, would, that would be a big family photo. <laughs> yes. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O, halal dot info.